However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. (laughs) Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Prime Time with Sean Mooney, the final original episode of PTSM. Final. Wow. That is a harsh word, isn't it? Uh, hearing those words, though, brings forth a number of thoughts, folks. It has been three years since the first episode was uploaded. Almost exactly. It's kind of crazy. I think the first primetime originally, of course, was primetime with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Sean Mooney. And I believe the first one dropped on June 18th back then, uh, three years ago, 2017. And uh, we did 20 episodes together. Uh, I I can honestly say that uh, this would not have happened without Jim Duggan. If uh, Jim hadn't signed on and it took some convincing, uh, this thing would have never happened. And I am eternally grateful to Jim for helping launch this podcast. And uh, we would have never been able to take it where we did without him, without him getting that first uh, big bump, because that brought a lot of people in to listen and uh, we took it from there. And thank you, thank you, Jim Duggan. I, uh, I, will, I will never forget uh, what you did. Um, the decision to end this podcast, uh, folks, was not an easy one. Uh, it has been awesome to have had so many loyal listeners over the past three years. Uh, it hasn't always been a smooth ride. Uh, that's true. But uh, you hear people talk about podcasts. Uh, yeah, it, it isn't easy, especially when you're starting out. And we worked really for a, a very long time, uh, really the first year before we started to bring on any sponsors. And, uh, you know, early on after Hacksaw left, uh, it was, I, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. I wanted to keep going because Jim had other commitments and I wanted to keep the podcast going. I knew we had something going, but uh, I didn't know, like, who, who am I going to get? I wanted to be like an event center where, you know, I'd have some, somebody in every week. But, uh, man, what a, an undertaking that uh, it turns out to be because, you know, you got to get somebody else to come on every single week. It was 52 weeks a year, and uh, you need to get those guests. <laughs> so yeah, I remember having a conversation with Conrad, and, and he, you know, he said about uh, when, when he was thinking about doing a podcast and said, you know, just the idea of having to get guests was just crazy. That's why uh, he set up... Uh, his format, and uh, mm, it turned out to be kind of a successful one <laughs> with uh, his stable of, of stars. But uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was easy early on, and, and we 
uh, you know, just I just would just call people and I would call 10 people at a time and maybe one might get back to me and then you have to try and arrange something and get them on. And a lot of the guys uh, weren't really savvy with the technology. And so you never knew what you were going to get on the other end as far as, uh, you know, static or the phone dropping out or, but um, it was all worth it because I think the people that we've had on the show, pretty much every single one of them, are very, very inspiring people. And after we had been doing the show for a while, you know, we'd been in maybe a year or, you know, a year and a half or so, and I suddenly realized when I really thought about the show is that it wasn't so much, I mean, of course it was about pro wrestling, but it wasn't so much about pro wrestling and its history during one of the greatest times ever in the existence of the business But most of all, I realized that it was about the lives of some truly extraordinary people. These people that do what they do in this business are just incredible because it's not like you get hired and somebody gives you a contract, at least in the early days. It didn't work that way. And you had to overcome so much adversity. You really had to want it. And a lot of these people came from very meager beginnings uh, you know, uh, tough upbringings, but they just had a dream. They had nothing and they just followed that dream and would never, ever, ever give it up. And when they made it, uh, they enjoyed it. So if, uh, you really listened, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you still haven't listened to all the episodes, no worries. The podcast is still going to be up there and we will continue to post the vault episodes every Wednesday uh, in this, this slot. Or you can just go to the library and select an episode that you would like to hear. They're all going to be there. Um, most of all, though, I, I want to thank all of you, all of you loyal PTSM listeners out there, especially those of you have, who have been there from the beginning and uh, all of you who became Patreon members with us, uh, the ones who stuck by us week after week. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, You're just incredible. And as I said, uh, this decision, you know, it's not been easy. Uh, I could list some reasons, but I'm not going to. But all I can say really at this point is that it is time. It has just gotten to that point. But it's just been fantastic. I have, uh, really, it's just been, uh, the experience has been unbelievable. I never, ever expected to... Uh, you know, get back into this business and see some of the people I hadn't seen for so long and be invited to do shows and uh, have people contact me and have people tell me how much uh, the small part that I was of that incredible era, how much that meant to them. And, um, you know, it's just been fantastic. But, you know, it's it's time for a new adventure for me. And while I may not be doing uh, any more new primetime episodes, I will not be going away. I am, uh, I'm just going to uh, focus more on my newest venture. And some of you may remember this, uh, uh, Upside of 40 with Sean Mooney. Now, we originally, originally launched it a few months back, but I am really, really excited. I've always believed in this, this idea, and I have uh, continued to make videos. I've continued to do interviews with people. Because I really, really uh, believe in it. And I'm uh, really excited about putting more of the same commitment that I've made to this show, that I've had with PTSM, uh, into Upside. Uh, 
And uh, the show is uh, a podcast. It's going to be a podcast every week with some really interesting people. And uh, also a YouTube channel that will include all kinds of videos. Um, you know, I've been involved in production my whole life. Uh, I uh, really love doing it. And I've already made some uh, a bunch of videos for this when we launched this officially. And it's all about uh, men over 40, but, uh, you know, and beyond. Uh, and everything we deal with in our lives. You know, health, uh, jobs, fitness, sex, money, mental health, um, you know, uh, you name it. I, I, I will cover it. And uh, uh, with as crazy a world it is right now, there has never been a better time for something like this. And I hope you're going to come along with me for the ride. There are a lot of wrestling podcasts out there, and I know all of you might have uh, five or six that you listen to on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, when you want to uh, find out about, uh, you know, and I know a lot of you are in my wheelhouse. You're uh, maybe in your 50s, maybe even your 60s, uh, your 40s even. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this is a guide. This is a life guide, and we're going to have a blast doing it. And I hope that you will add me to the list, and you'll also subscribe to the YouTube channel. And I am officially uh, going to launch it next week. So uh, this drops on Wednesday next uh, week, next Wednesday. Uh, uh, you know, it will already be up. And so when you get done listening to this, I hope that you will immediately go and subscribe to the uh, YouTube channel, Upside uh, 40 with Sean Mooney. Just search it and it'll take you right there. Please subscribe and check out. There'll be a lot of material already up there. So you can check it out and see if it's something you're into. And then, of course, we're going to have Upside of 40, which is already on this platform, on Spreaker. And you guys can, uh, you know, you can just uh, listen to it from here. So if you, you get uh, whatever platform, it's going to be up there. And I, uh, I, uh, I hope that you're going to join me for this. Now, it, it is going to take me a while. I Really, I am literally starting this venture from scratch. I'm all on my own. I can't even afford to take Casey uh, with me and Evan. You guys have gotten to know them uh, with me on this adventure uh, because I just, you know, I got to get this thing off the ground. I can't ask them to come and do this. But I am just so committed to it. So I'm... Uh, uh, you know, I, I will still be in touch with them and everything. And uh, but uh, it, it's just that until I can get to a point where we can get the band back together, uh, it, it's me. And so I really need your help uh, to get this uh, going. And you can do that by subscribing to both the podcast and the YouTube channel. And uh, I, I hope you will do that. And we will have uh, you know the links to this right here with the podcast, so you can do it as soon as you get done listening. Uh, but before we get to, uh, we got a lot of stuff in this episode, this final episode. Before we get to that, though, I uh, I first want to thank Brian Nobbs of the Nasty Boys for coming on last week. Uh, it was kind of like, it was late notice, and uh, Brian has always been a great uh, friend of the podcast. And uh, if you've been following what's happening with him, he's been going through a lot of health issues. Uh, he had a knee infection about uh, a little over a year ago, and it just was really bad. I mean, he almost lost his leg, and that led to a knee replacement. So uh, anything you can do to help him out. And if you're looking to get some, uh, you know, update, maybe your Nasty Boys merch, uh, you could do that. That would be fantastic. It would be a great way to do it and uh, also help out Jerry Sags, his partner. You know, he's got some health issues. These guys never, you know, they lived hard, man. They they lived hard in the ring and out of the ring. And uh, anyway, 
go to nastyville.net, nastyville.net, and, and pick up some of their merch. Uh, and that would be that would be fantastic. So pick up some of it at nastyville.net. All right, let's get to it. Uh, you know, I was thinking, what would be a great way to wrap up this podcast? And I thought it would be awesome to do uh, the episode featuring clips of my five favorite podcasts. But when I tried to you know, sit down and decide just which were my five favorites, it was impossible. So it just didn't do the other ones justice. So I, I uh, yeah, and said justice will be a part of this. <laughs> you laughing, Sean? Um, so I'm just going to call it five of my favorites instead of my five favorite podcasts. Does that make sense? Because I do have more favorites. It's just that we can't fit them all in here. Uh, and uh, so that's that's what I'm doing. And I, I thought a great way to start would be with my conversation with Bruce Pritchard. I started with Bruce. I mean, he, and many times because he was my, uh, when I first did this on my own, he was uh, the first guest I had uh, when I did this. And I uh, was grateful for him for doing that. But I started in the business with Bruce in a sense, because when I went to the WWF, he was running the production center and I was this green punk, man. I didn't know anything. And he was a mentor early on to me. And, of course, we had our ups and downs, you know, about Bruce uh, when, in those days. But he was really like a brother. And uh, we all lived in Stanford and were around each other all the time. And he really had a big role in, in uh, my career. I don't, even know, I don't even know if I would have gotten the job if he wasn't the guy in the audition room, if he wasn't in the studio that day and, uh, and was impressed for some reason. So... I owe a lot to Bruce, and I have to tell you, I could not be happier for him for where his journey has taken him. And uh, so with that, I wanted to begin where I began in the world of professional wrestling with my audition with the WWF uh, with Bruce Pritchard and uh, a little more of that conversation when it all began. Ding, ding, ding. I was working for Major League Baseball Productions in New York City, and Maybe you know the story. It's never really been confirmed to me, but I did a show called Light Moments in Sports with Joe Namath, and I was I was actually producing the show, and you know Joe couldn't do, go out and do stuff, you know, uh, because of his needs. He just wasn't capable, and they needed somebody to go out and do crazy uh, sports stuff. And I went to the the Monster Factory in New Jersey and had done the story, and it appeared in this Light Moments in Sports show, and I was told that somehow Vince saw it. Somebody saw me do it. You know, it was I played the idiot reporter who gets crap beat out of him and that he saw it. And a guy that was working there at the time, I don't know if you remember him, Scotty Davis had worked for MLB and worked at the facility. He was one of the guys helping with the syndicated tapes, getting them sent out. And he called me and said, Vince wants to want you to audition. And that was like the first I'd heard of anything of, of I mean, I, of course I kept up on what was happening with the WWF, but as far as actually getting a chance to get a job there, do you know how the I, how the hell I ended up there? Do you or how that came about? Do you remember? I, because you were I there remember. by audition. Yeah. I I remember seeing a tape, and I remember seeing a tape of you do it, and it was sports stuff. I, I yeah. don't I don't remember the name of it, but I remember seeing stuff. Vince said, "Take a look at this guy, and let's get him in here." And the, the rest, as they say, is history. Because yeah. we were looking, we had Gene Okerlund who was doing a lot of that stuff, and Gene was just getting completely uh, just worn to bits. And I had the event center was something that I had come up with to basically 
save talent and to try and save Gene at the time mm-hmm. from doing so, you know, you would have to do interviews for every single market. And Howard Finkel used to write out who would do what interviews and had everybody right. doing every conceivable interview that you could do for right. every conceivable market. And probably 10% of it actually ever made air, but Howard would do it to uh, entertain himself. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea was to streamline it and do wraparounds. So the talent only had to do one generic promo for th- their opponent. And then right. we would do the wraparounds for the town specific. And it was yeah. similar to what we had done in mid South, but it was a, a much bigger project. And that's how the event center was born. Yeah. But now, to, go ahead. But Gene, Gene was burnt and we needed someone. Yeah. Vince was looking for a younger, you know, younger look, uh, other than Oakland. And didn't you know? Just didn't want to burn Gene out at the time. And uh, here was this kid. I forget how your tape came to us. I thought you had sent it to us. No, uh, well, I did because that was after Scott called me and said, "Send up your tape." Like somebody had seen that that bit on uh, the Light Moments and Sports Show, and he said, "Send your tape up here." So he he's the one that got my tape to you guys. And then I got this call, and I remember who I can't remember who the P uh, the the uh, HR guy was. Uh, Alan but, Frost. Yes, yes, and he he I met me at the train station and took me over there and and Linda's Jaguar at the time that she had, and uh, and took me to the TV studio where of course I did the the uh, infamous sell me the broom audition <laughs> that that I I don't remember that part I heard you you had mentioned that I did a somewhat decent job with that I must have done something to get your attention but I was I always remember like what that's like sell me a pencil right kind of the old uh, and I don't even exactly. remember what I did. I don't remember what I did. But uh, obviously it worked. And, and I do remember the one thing I did do that I thought would stand out. Is I knew, okay, they've got all these guys coming up here doing these auditions. I have to do something different, like that's beyond what they asked me to do. And I came up with this dumbass skit where I think I did, you know, all you wrestling fans, you're crazy about the WWF. It's time to come out of the closet. Tell your friends and family, burst out of there. I don't remember what it was, but I... I did that and I, uh, just to be different. And, uh, yeah, two weeks later I got a call from Alan and he said, if you want to come up here and work? And I think I was making, uh, I don't know, 50,000 or something at the time, which I thought was okay. And I, and they, they were, I can't remember what the amount was, but I said, if you give me you know, like three more, I'll do it. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I was, was hired huh? by the WWF. Oh. Yeah. Oh no, it was it wasn't a lot of money back then. I mean, really, but for New York, and I was living in New York City, so I knew what it was like to starve. There's one thing that I've never forgiven Brother Love for, and uh, bring you back a little bit. But we were doing a, a uh, one of the Coliseum home videos, and uh, I was instructed because the 10th anniversary of something to wear my tuxedo. I had one tuxedo, Bruce. A nice one tuxedo. tuxedo. It was Very a nice, nice tuxedo. tuxedo. It was yes. a nice tuxedo. Very nice tuxedo. And uh, I had a garden show. We used to do Madison Square Garden, and we'd do the Boston Garden every month. And so <clears throat> this was like a day before. And uh, so we're shooting this on the set at one, uh, at Hamilton. And Brother Love was making an appearance. And I don't know if you if this was your idea or Shivani's. But they brought out the big anniversary cake, and of course, nobody told me what was going on. And why would you when you've got a good rib to to pull off? And Brother Love, and you can see, and man, did you smack me with that cake all over my one tuxedo that I needed the next day. (laughs) 
and covered. And like, what the hell? I, I don't I recall you, that, Sean. That that's, this it, doesn't sound like anything I would no, ever. No, no, absolutely not. I'm sorry, but no. there is there is evidence. You can't deny this one. Sorry, brother love. It's so Photoshop. Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, but I, if you if you go and look at not only that tape, you see what happened. But if there is tape that exists from the day after that event, you can see. I had to I had to clean that thing. I didn't have time to take it to a cleaners. And so there is a just white stains from this this uh, cake, this frosting on the tuxedo the next night when I'm at, when I'm at the garden. So that yeah, uh, that doesn't sound I like something forget. I would do I at all. Forget, that I, ne- yeah. I would never, I would never do. You know, you read me one time too. It was I'll never forget it, and, and I never sold it either. Um, but you and I shared a room one night, mm. and um, yes. so you got me back. And you, you got up and left before I did. And when I finally got up to get up in the morning and take my morning shower, which I, I do practically every day, um, I got out of the shower and I, I go to get a towel and all the towels had mysteriously been soaked in water <laughs> and placed back meticulously on the shelves where they had been. That, that might've been one of the greatest ribs I ever pull off. But I have to, I have to tell you though, the, the, uh, the creative behind that was Bob Cartago because, you know, he was a master of it. He did give me that one too. But uh, yeah, I actually, the fact that I pulled it off, I'm very proud of. Only so. problem is kid that I had uh, dry towels in my bag from the night before. Um, from Boiled the again. So, Damn. Yeah. So I but just it was had a good rib. You have to admit it was, a, it was a good rib. No, I liked it. I liked it. I was, I was extremely impressed and, and uh, see, once again, it just, goes to show you that I should have been more impressed with Bob than you and see there. You pulled it off. You did. Uh, okay. But speaking of being another person, and this is another uh, mystery that we need to have solved because uh, if you recall, my um, brother, my, my twin, Ian. I always liked Ian better than you too. Well, I've heard that. A lot of people said that, but did, did, now, was that you who came up with that? Or was Vince? I, I don't know if it was a shortage of talent. We didn't have anybody who else who could host it. But why didn't I get to be evil? I wanted to be evil twin Ian Mooney. I don't uh, Why? Well, I wanted chance. to be evil twin, too. And, and again, as I say oftentimes on, on our show, something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, by God, um, a lot of times you have to be careful what you suggest because it will come to fruition. Mm-hmm. And the comment was made, I wish I had uh, basically clone or a twin of Sean. Mm-hmm. And Vince started laughing. Let's make him a twin. <laughs> Brilliant. And we were, we needed talent. Yeah. We, we were looking for other talent and I just said, God, I wish I had another Sean. So yeah. Craig DeGeorge we, was long gone. Oh God, not a fan, not a fan of Craig. Um, but, uh, he was, he was, he was young. He was very young and, and new in the business. I was young in the business and we just clashed. I'm sure he's a great guy. And no, no, he's going to do very well. He's done very well in broadcasting and sports. Yeah. So I hope he has, I'm going to get him on. I'm going to get him on sometime because I'd love to hear about his time there. I'm sure it's something he remembers, uh, vividly. So, oh yeah, he'll he'll yeah. just blast me. <laughs> Bruce, you weren't what? the easiest to get along with. Uh, that's we we you have admitted that. So yeah. I have. 
No, I know that. I'm I'm well aware, especially in those days, because yeah. it was I was under, you know what <laughs> what everybody doesn't doesn't realize was the the other side of that having to deal with Vince um, that nobody else had to deal with. Yeah. Well, so, I, yeah. and I still I look back. I don't know how anybody could do that. There's two there's two people that I know in in existence, and, and because the others that have been around a long time, uh, well, maybe three, because we got to include Pat. Uh, that have been able to be in that circle, who've been able to, who, who, you know, are, and that is uh, Pat Patterson, you, and Kevin Dunn. Now, there's others that have been there, but not like you guys. I mean, you have, have every day, the middle of the night phone calls, come over to the house, uh, and not many people can survive that. Even if you have the fortitude, you've got to be a special person to know how to deal with them, right? It's, it's yeah. Not, yeah. And, and knowing which one you're dealing with. Right. So it, it was, yeah, and 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 I and it was, you know, shit rolls downhill, and it was. I would take, I took it out on everybody. I'm, I know I did, and I, I like, like say, I was not the easiest person to deal with in those days because I, I had everything down my neck on the other side. No excuses. Still could have been nicer and could have handled things differently, and, and wish I would have in some cases. But you're 24 years old in charge of. Uh, all this stuff and you go on and do what you got to do. So it's good. But, um, so yeah, we just hired, we hired Ian, we we (laughs) hired Ian and he, Ian turned out to be just so much nicer and better than you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I keep hearing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but they didn't know him like I did. He just, uh, he was, uh, not, he was, he had, uh, evil intentions and I, and I was just waiting for him to do something like we'd come on the set and, you know, hit me with a chair to take over the event center. There was, like, so much, but nothing. I, he was, like, Mooney with uh, different clothes. Yeah, I know. So he wh- had a little bit of that. He had a little more of the Irish did, accent than you did. Yeah, yeah, but I was just wondering why uh, I didn't get that opportunity, because I, I used to bug you all the time about it. Like, come on, Vince, let, Eric, come on, uh, Bruce, come on, let me, let me do something to him. Let's, let's mess with me. <laughs> i did i wanted to be a heel so bad i oh god i wanted to be a heel i had to sit over there and let bobby just abuse me i just wanted a chance i wanted we could have done something with a split screen you know and have him come out and oh, smack know. me with a chair and we could have had a little bit of a storyline but i think that you know the the biggest problem and i think that the issue I, i'm i'm paraphrasing i'm putting words in vince's mouth right now but i think that he felt that People didn't get it as it was the way we presented it, and that he thinks that people would have thought it was you, and he didn't want to hurt your credibility. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, and that, uh, instead, that, that role needed to have credibility. Yeah, exactly. Of course, when you're uh, the the event center, yes. But the, but on spotlight, all that I really got out of is I got to get beat up every week by uh, Sherry because she beat, and you probably were behind some of this too, Bruce. You know, she beat the. Stuffing out of me every week. Cherry? Oh my God. She was brutal. Remember the one? There's one and it's on tape where she had me taped to a chair with with the uh, or tied up to a chair. And I'm supposed to hold the sign up uh saying we'll be back or something like that. And I knew it was a total set. So as I raise my feet up, she flips the chair and I land like on the back of my head. And I goes, like saw stars. <laughs> oh my God, that woman beat me senseless. Every week, I would just get nervous about these shows going, what is she going to do to me now? There's one where she, you see she's just throwing stuff at me as I'm trying to wrap up the show. 
And I'm not, not, we're not talking like, you know, empty boxes. She's throwing cans and you see me like push it, you know, like staplers. <laughs> oh, I no, know I... you were behind it. You could admit it now. I know it was you. Not that she wouldn't have done it anyway, but I know you were behind that stuff. Why would you think I'm you... that evil? Because <laughs> you, you were. Just so loved and, Not and, as even and, today. and revered. When I saw Bruce again, it had been decades since uh, the, those days in Stanford. And it's funny, and you hear this all the time when people say that uh, you kind of leave off where you, you know, where you were. And that, it was very much like that with Bruce. He hadn't changed a whole lot in the sense that, you know, uh, we were both, uh, you know, immature kids in a sense back then. And we, we had grown up. But still, you know, Bruce could be one of the greatest guys in the world. And uh, he is like that today. And I think he still looks out for me. You know, he still looks out for me in a way when, uh, uh, you know, some of the things I got to do with Conrad and uh, always just so great with me. And, and I, he, I really consider him a great friend. And like I said, I couldn't be happier for him for what's happening in his life right now and, and back with the WWE. And it's clear that he's not done yet. Um, but, uh, that was great when we, we first got to meet up again after all those years at StarCast and it was like going back in time, but, uh, it is great to see and it is, uh, what he's doing now. And, and like I said, he still has a, a lot more to do and I want to thank Bruce. All right. So let's get to this next, uh, clip, uh, a series of clips and, um, and it, and they feature uh, Coco Beware. And I hope I hope you've listened to that episode. If you haven't, and maybe after you listen to this, you'll want to go back and listen to it. But Coco Beware is really an incredible person. And he was one of the, you know, I didn't have many friends with the, when it came to the boys in the WWF because I, I pretty much kept my distance. I just, I thought that that was uh, good for my career. You know, I could only get in trouble because uh, if you knew it was the wild, wild west back then, and I didn't want to ever be caught in a situation where I could lose my job. But Coco was this really solid guy. And, and I got to be uh, really good friends with him. Um, and we just hit it off. And he really is just a great guy. And when I tracked him down to bring him on uh, the, uh, the podcast, and I just got a phone number and called him. And he was working somewhere. I don't know if he was, uh, you know, putting something up at a house or something like that. And he had like a, his his flip phone, and the connection was terrible. But we had a really great conversation, and we finally figured out when we could get him on. But you know, Coco is so real. Uh, he is just so candid, and uh, you know, all the episode we op- episodes we did. I mean, he told uh, in this one. I have to tell you, he had some of the best stories of of all the podcasts. I mean, he just was. He's a great storyteller, and he told uh, some of the most funny and most intense stories of of the podcast. Uh, I mean, really, uh, the best tale uh, of uh, learning to work with Frankie, if you'll remember that, and we're going to include that in this. But it was. I, I mean, I was crying. I was laughing so hard because he talks about the fact that, you know, here he had this great idea to have this bird and had no idea what to do with it. Once it all happened, he didn't know how to train a gigantic parrot. And he talks about it and uh, having to take this bird to the ring. And then finally, uh, you know, uh, the two of them figuring it out. This basically what it came down to. And then all on the other side of this, 
is his knockdown brawl. And you've uh, probably heard the legend of this over the years with a WWE executive in Europe. Uh, and just really, um, uh, both both of them. And, and I have to tell you that Coco's episode, I think, is the only one that we, re- we received, you know, explicit uh, content. But we had to include all that in there because there's no way you could have captured the story without that. And it, it's all there. Uh, so uh, Coco Beware, definitely an incredible individual who worked his ass off to achieve what he did in the WWF and would not take shit from anybody. Uh, one of the toughest people to ever step into the ring. Uh, here's here's a part of my conversation with my, my good friend Coco Beware. I want to know how in the world you figure out how to hand, handle not only just having Frankie around, but you had to travel with him on the road. Not only, so what did you take, uh, you know, Birds Are Us course? Did you, how did you learn to handle a, a bird? That was a big, it wasn't a little parakeet. You're talking this huge macaw, right? Well, That's I what it was. It took, it, it, it took me a minute. The first night they brought Frank, <laughs> Frankie in to Baltimore, Baltimore Maryland TV. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Pat Patterson and myself was, in fact, they brought him in. Wow! In this cage, Pat Paddles and ourselves was trying to get the bird out of the cage. He wouldn't come out. He wouldn't come <laughs> out of the cage. I wouldn't come out either. But the must have been. Yeah. You got to go out. And- he's squawking and going on. And, and Pat going, Coco, you sure you want to do this? I said, I got to do this. What are you crazy? <laughs> right, right. I got, I got to do this, Pat. He said, I said, this is part of my gimmick. And he said, "Golly, they just they just sent this thing in from Brazil, and this thing is wild as heck." Coco, look at him; he's biting on the cage. He's chewing his cage up. And uh, so, so, uh, so, so Pat said, "He's not coming out, Coco. He's not coming out." And uh, I the said, "Pat, what we gonna out. <laughs> right?" I said, "Pat, what we what we gonna have to do is we're gonna have to disassemble the cage." <laughs> So me and Pat started unscrewing all the screws and stuff like that, and we, <laughs> man, you took the we cage took all the screw apart from around the bird, right? <laughs> yeah, just took the took the little doll cage away, and then and then we disassembled it, and then of course the bird didn't have no, he couldn't he couldn't do nothing but just stand there and look at us in the cage. So, so I'm, I'm where, going. Were where the wings clipped so it couldn't fly off in the arena? That would have been at, something. <laughs> well, at the time, we was in the back of the dressing room. Yeah. All this was, was in the dressing room first, and then uh, so we I had to we had to hold him down, uh, try to try to I put a towel over his head. I remember Probably that pissing. watching Frankie's watching the, now, right? <laughs> right. Oh, he's pissed big time, you know. So I put a towel over his head and, and stuff like that, and uh, and I. Uh, and we're trying to trying to have something. I can't remember what was had something to hold his head down because they they gave us a while, they gave us a chain to put around his leg so he won't fly away. <laughs> so I mean, I put this this is first time this ever. They have pictures of this in Baltimore. This yeah. is first time I I took Frankie out with a chain on his leg, first and last. So we found it. Charlie goes out uh, for the show. Right. Here it is. 
I got this, I got Frankie, I got him, I got Frankie in my hand, in my right hand, and he's holding on, he's biting my fingers and all that stuff, and I'm still trying to do the Birdman dance and not letting the people know that this bird's biting the crap out of me, <laughs> and so my, my, my fingers are bleeding and going on, and, and golly, you know, and I'm going, I'll come back. I, when we, when the match was over, I don't know if I won or anything like that. I didn't really care. I was more was get back at trying to get back at Frank, and I I, I was kind of pissed at Frank. I said, "Man, oh, you yeah. bit me. You did this. You did that." I said, yeah. and then Pat said, "Coco, you sure you want to do this? Because this bird, look at you bleeding. Crazy. Oh my God." <laughs> I said, "Yeah." I said, "Pat, it's gonna be me, me or that bird in the morning." <laughs> You're going to see me or him. Oh, no. Come on, I'm telling you right Somebody's now. Somebody's going to be the boss by tomorrow, right? <laughs> right. I said, you know. So I, I finally took him after it's all over with, got him in the hotel. Sean, I stayed up practically all night fooling with him, and they had to fly out the next morning. Yeah. And, uh, and Trying I'm Trying to get I'm, him to stay on your arm and the whole thing? or were Yes, you... I'm working with Frankie. I'm working yeah. with him. Didn't have nothing to work with. So I finally, I finally uh, got into uh, I think it was Buffalo. So I went to a, a pet store and, and got books and stuff like that. And I talked to some uh, bird trainers was was in the store. I said, "How you come? How you how you calm a bird down?" He said, "Do you read all? You got to read everything in this book to calm him down." And they said, and the guy told me, "said Coco." He said, "Oh, he know he didn't know me about Coco." He just said. Here, you put this book down. Go over there and get you two sticks. He said, see these two perch sticks? He said, that's how you train your bird. He said, you got you got you got you got you got a little stand that he sets on. All right. He said, get him off that stand by pushing him. When he steps, push put that stick up on his chest, he'll step up like he's gonna look. He don't want to fall backwards. Either he gonna step up or he gonna fall back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, so he said, start rotating these sticks. And what you're doing, you're playing games with him, and he's stepping up all the time. He's stepping up as you rotate the sticks. What you're doing, you're getting him real tired, so you can you can work with him. <laughs> okay. In other words, what we call blowing his ass up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, you're gonna wear him down. So, so when Frank is all exhausted and everything, his little tongue was coming out. I could see that. <laughs> and, you know, and like, okay, all right, I had enough. I had enough. Yeah, and, what do you want then, me to do? And, yeah. and then I set him on the perch. Now, now Frankie's step up on my, up on my hand now. I'll reach out my hand. Oh, man, he was just, Sean, he was just like, like he was just clockwork. I mean, he just stepped right up like he's been doing this all the time. He stepped up on my fingers, on my hand, and stuff like that. Then he tried to bite me. I guess he just didn't have the wind to bite me. <laughs> you know? He had nothing you left. <laughs> right. He, and I just kept doing that every every day. Kept fooling with. And then he's and the guy says every time he every time he tried to uh, 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 snap on you, take that stick and, and just straighten him with that stick. And he'll look at that stick and oh and say, oh my god and he and he. And he'll come back down. Sometimes you have, may have to just tap him on the beak right. with the stick. No, and be hollering no the same time. No, don't do that. No, 
just kind of light tap, not hard, you know. Yeah. And uh, and and he finally got it, and then and and then uh, he said, then you could practice with him, open his cage up, and then let him go on the floor, let him walk to his cage. He should go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he don't walk in his cage, take show him the stick, and he <laughs> he definitely would go in the cage. Cause he don't want to get hit. Yeah. He think or he's he, going to hit him. Yeah. Or he's going to head for the door. <laughs> right. So, so, so we did, I did this. I mean, constantly every day for 30 minutes, every day for 30 minutes, even at home. I mean, I almost got a divorce cause I spent more time with Frankie <laughs> than my wife. And I want to move on to a topic. And, I, and it's probably one you don't like to, to talk a lot about, but I, I want to mention it because I want people to understand how you overcome things and how you moved on, you kept pressed on, and you overcome it. And that incident, you, you were fired in, in 89, and I remember at the time, I was there, Coco, when I heard about this with this fight with, that you had over there with Jim Troy. And I knew who the guy was because uh, he had worked... Uh, for Vince up in uh, in Cape in the Cape when he had that uh, arena up there in hockey, whatever. Uh, I don't know how much you want to talk about, but what I wanted to ask you though is, uh, you know, how you got through that. Uh, I know that uh, it was an incident that was certainly sparked by this guy. Uh, and uh, anyway, I'll just tell me what you want to tell me about it. Well. And this is an 89 European I'm, tour. I'm go, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going I'm not going to sit there and lie for Jim. I'm not going to sit here and lie for myself. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this is the true story of everything. Uh, first of all, Hulk Hogan was having trouble out of Jim over there. Yeah. Okay, at times. He, they had an argument back and forth. Okay, that night we was down in a little bar. I was over there uh, playing the piano. I was playing the piano and, and just and folks was just loving to me playing. You know, young ladies and guys was around, and I was just over there playing away. And then at the bar, it was Jim Troy. Sean Michaels and another referee, I can't remember his name. Well, Troy and 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 Michaels got into it. The people was all moving the tables out of the way and stuff like that. And and then the lady ran over to me, said, Coco. Can you mind going over there? Your buddies are getting ready to fight. Can you stop them? We, you know, we don't know what, how to do this. We don't know nothing about that. You know, so I went up. So I, I just stopped playing the piano. And meantime, when I went over there, well, Jim Troy was all in Shawn Michaels' face. Well, they was in each other's face, spitting back and forth with each other and going on. And Troy was just going crazy. I uh, I will never forget it. This exact words. So excuse me if I if uh, if I say something. Troy was going. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you, fucking wrestlers. Y'all make me so fucking sick. You know what? 
I got to babysit y'all fucking ass. Vince McMahon pays me a lot of fucking money to babysit you phony ass fucking wrestlers. And he had a few cocktails, I imagine. Yes, yes, you know, and and going on, he said, y'all don't have no fucking guts to do nothing. You know, that, you know, I got to walk y'all around here like fucking babies and shit like that, you know, and so. He and told why, why was Torres, he on that tour anyway? He wasn't he wasn't an agent. Uh, how did he end up yeah. uh, going there anyway? I have no idea. Yeah. And and then finally, when they, and, and he said, "Yeah, you don't point He had his finger pointing at Shawn Michaels, spitting his face. You don't have no fucking guts to do nothing, you phony ass fucking wrestler. I'm a hockey player. I'm a lot tougher than you fucking wrestlers. Oh boy. No." So, Exact words now. I'm telling you, I just, oh, I'm not lying on it. Yeah. And uh, and so Shawn Michaels was 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 talking back for him and stuff like that. And he told the referee, "Get the fuck out of this building now. Get out of the bar. Go, go." And that, that referee man, he he ran like crazy up because the hotel was just up the hill. Yeah. And uh. And of course, he was he was pushing Michaels around and all that stuff, and and so I came over. I said, "Come on, guys, let's let's don't do that in up here. Let's don't do that in front of these people here, man. We're gonna get yeah. in. You guys are gonna get in trouble. Come on." Troy looked at me and said, "Oh, here's another phony ass fucking wrestler." <laughs> Let me see if he's got any fucking balls because this fucking punk won't fight. He won't do nothing. He haul off and slap me. Whoa. Yeah. And when he did that, I said, oh, well, you got a wrestler now. He's getting ready to knock the hell out of you. And I'm, hey, I, Sean, I still have the mark on my left palm of my hand right now where I, I hit him so hard I went down. And, 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 and a beer bottle was cracked, was, was, fell on the floor and busted. And I cut my hand, my palm of my hand right now, you know, uh, um, right then. And then I still have the mark to, uh, to show for it. Mm-hmm. So here it is. I'm, you know, now I'm on, now I am on Troy. I am whooping his ass big time. <laughs> Game so on. he finally, finally gets up. He runs out of the bar. I'm bleeding like a damn stuck hog. Then, and then I jump, and then Troy jumps into a, a taxi. I'm chasing the damn taxi up the hill. Mm-hmm. So I chased it. I ran all the way up the hill, and, and I, I kind of stopped. And the taxi, Troy and them, they went on. Mm-hmm. So I went inside the hotel, and uh, I, uh, I called Marty, Marty Gennetti. Mm-hmm. I said, Marty, I finally got hold of Marty. I said, come down to the lobby. Marty come down to the lobby. And I said, uh, man, that Jim Troy was jumping on Sean, and Sean wouldn't even fight back or do nothing, whatever. I'm talking about he spit it all in Sean's face, shoving on him and everything. And and Marty, Marty asked the, uh, the clerk there at the hotel, where's Jim Troy's keys at to the hotel? So he didn't move fast enough. Marty jumped over behind the desk, just jumped over and was helping the guy to find the keys. Where's the damn keys at? Where's the keys at? Uh, and he finally got found the keys 
and me and Marty went to Jim Cord's room, opened opened his door, and Marty just took everything in the Jim Cord's room and just tore it up, lamps, everything, mm. just closed. Just, when he said when he comes back, he said his his his, his place is gonna be in a wreck. And then then Marty came uh, Marty uh, came back up. We well we came back up to the lobby, and of course this lobby was where you had the reception, the, the clerk's desk, and then you had the, you had a kitchen to it, right? Yeah. Where you can, you can check in and then you just walk down a little bit. There's a breakfast room and stuff like that. So me and Marty were sitting in the lobby and, and uh, guess who came in the door? Jim Troy. Oh man. When Jim Troy came through the door, I said, Troy, it's not over yet, man. And me and him got to fighting right there in the kitchen, right there in that kitchen. I'm talking about, I, I knocked, I knocked Troy over some tables, everything. When I got him down, I just stayed on, I punched him and punched him and, and punched him and punched him to, uh, Sean, I knocked him completely out. I knocked him completely out. I left so him laying on top. you pretty much lost it at this point. I mean, were you, I mean, you thinking yes, I could have pre- killed I pretty this much guy? Lost <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I pretty much lost it. And then Sean Michaels turned around. Here come here come here come Sean Michaels through the door. Then Marty turned around and slapped 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 the hell out of Sean uh three or four times for not fighting back. Uh-huh. And so the next morning so no, no, wait a minute, back up. So now I go what to did, my room. What did Sean oh, say? Why did he say he didn't? Uh, he didn't go after. Oh, him? I, I don't know. He was Marty was just on his butt. Marty just from, and, and Sean didn't want. He didn't even want to talk to me. He didn't want to talk about it no more because he knew. He knew I fought. I fought that for him. I fought his fault. You know his fight for it. And so, yeah. so here it is. Uh, so we get. I get. I go back to my hotel. That my room that night. So I called back up to the front desk. I said, I said, do you have a doctor on hand? He finally got me a doctor that came there and sold my palm of my hand up. Sold it up. And uh, he said, now don't move it. He put put a brace on it where I couldn't bend my fingers and nothing like that. He said, you got to keep this on because you might lose this finger if you don't. He said, "You tender. You almost lost. You lost your finger." Uh, just, I just love that conversation with Coco I mean, because he is just so funny and so intense, and really uh, tells it like it is. No question about it. And I have to add in here that uh, when we did that episode and we were wrapping up, and I always ask the guys, you know, what do you want to? How can people get in touch with you? You know, so they can plug something or tell people. And so Coco didn't really have anything set up or anything. And he was thinking, well, maybe I can get some, uh, you know, some uh, appearances uh, and that sort of thing. And so he gave out his phone number, like his phone number, just the, his cell phone, the flip phone. And, and I even said on there, I'm like, you sure you want to do that, Coco? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's no problem. Well, uh, after that episode drops, he calls me and he's like, Sean, can you get that phone number off? of the podcast because I'm getting phone call after phone call from people who just want to talk to me. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, why is he answering the phone? 
But anyway, that was so funny. And we had to go back in there and take the phone number out uh, because he he thought it was going to be just fine. So <laughs> that was just just fantastic. And uh, love Coco. He was he was just all my time during the WWF. He was uh, really he was a great friend. And uh, like I said, I didn't have many friends or many people I got close to, but. I uh, really trusted him, and he was uh, a really, really good friend and helped me out a lot. Gave me a, a perspective from what those guys went through, and it really helped me out when I, uh, you know, got more and more and more into what I was doing with the with the WWF. And he definitely played a big role in that. So uh, loved loved having Coco on the podcast. Now, on the other uh, another individual who I I never got close to. I don't know if I really had, would have wanted to. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I never really got to be around uh, Lex Luger much during his time with the WWF, other than, you know, the various interviews that we would do back then uh, during his time there. And so I I, I could never really speak on the kind of person he was back in the day. But I, you know, I'd heard, I heard the stories, you know, about how he was and how he treated people, uh, a little bit full of himself. Uh, I guess, you know, that's uh, his character. The narcissist may have been um, pretty close. But uh, like I said, I did not get that chance to know him then. All I know is uh, the man that I've gotten to know a little bit over the last couple of years uh, is a pretty amazing person who is truly devoted to his faith. And uh, I'm talking about uh, Lex Luger. And uh, he is uh, really, I I don't know if you have ever encountered him at a show recently, um, but um, he really is a, a... a person that has uh, devoted his life to Christ and, and uh, is really, really, uh, uh, that's, that's how he uh, gets through every day. And the conversation we had was really candid. He was very honest, uh, talking about the uh, struggles that he faced during his career. And of course, his most tragic experience of his life when Miss Elizabeth uh, passed away at his home. And um, here's, here's part of that uh, very emotional conversation that I had with Lex Luger. Take a listen. You got involved with Elizabeth Hewlett. And mm-hmm. a lot of wrestling fans, Lex, remember her. And this is how I saw it, too, is that, you know, she was Miss Elizabeth, the innocent mm-hmm. woman by Randy Savage's side. And then basically after she left the WWF, she disappeared in many ways to them. Like she did some, you know, spots in WCW with you. So I don't think they ever really understood who she was. And mm-hmm. can you give us some some background on that? Because the, Randy and, and, and Liz were divorced in 92. And right. everybody know, knew of their relationship. Those who uh, worked within the company, we knew what that, uh, what that relationship was. It wasn't as insane as people you know, make it out to be in a sense, but Randy was unbelievably protective or jealous and all these, and right. So it wasn't a real, a real healthy relationship, but could you give us some idea of who she was? Um, and then how you two ended up together? Well, um, we were really, I mean, everybody loved and respected, uh, Miss Elizabeth, like you said, my gosh, yeah. talking yeah. about the, a, a, a iconic a woman and a man and a man a man sport back then, right? Right. So, um, 
I really got to know her during the Monday Night Wars. We'd all stay at the same hotels, and we'd see each other at the building. And what I thought, there's no such thing as an instant flirtation. I was obviously a married man and had yeah. no business uh, with any other women, looking back on it now, but um, work hard, play hard. Um, over time, we got to know each other a little bit at the building. Um, never any thoughts of her or I like hooking up or anything. I just, and then she was married. I was married. Mm-hmm. She had remarried someone. It was Randy was a long time ago, and he had brought other women like to the buildings at the go to the ring with them. So that was long done with. And she had remarried a guy in South Florida. So what started out as I thought is an instant flirtation a little bit uh, with a lot of us, the nitro girls and the guys in the hotel, you know, the, you know, mix all that together. Right, Sean? Yeah. After the matches with alcohol. Oh and pills boy. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, what started out as I thought was an inflirtation ended up becoming a full-blown uh, extramarital affair for both of us. Yeah. And um, she ended up getting divorced and moving to Atlanta where I lived and it continued on and, and progressed. And um, yeah, that was uh, something that happened and she, um, the lifestyle that we were all living at the time was, you know, what we just talked about with drugs and alcohol. Um, she was uh, partaking in that as well. Mm-hmm. And, but who would have, none of us ever anticipate um, overdosing, which is tragically what happened with Elizabeth, with Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, I've discussed before the night it happened. I mean, we were, I spent the day with my son and um, I came back and we ended up watching movies and popping some pills and uh, drinking some, some vodka. And um, right before I called 911, literally, um, she stand at the microwave. I was, I was heating us up some Boston Market meatloaf and mashed potatoes, one of our favorites. And uh, mm-hmm. she had gotten up to the microwave to help out. I go, oh, I got this. Let's sit down. I got this. Took her her meatloaf and mashed potatoes and He'd mime up and got back and sat down on the couch, and she uh, was, uh, I thought she'd fallen asleep. And I told people this, and when I talk about drugs, that you just never know how dangerous drugs are like Russian roulette. Yeah. One minute she was fine, standing next to me at the microwave. The next minute, I thought she was asleep on the couch. I'd nudge her and say, hey, Lex, wake up. Hey, Liz, you know, wake up. Eat your, eat your, eat your, eat your grub. And she didn't respond. Mm. I'm like, wow, she's really... Boy, did she pass out. So I, I set my tray down, stood up, uh, and uh, got over her and kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. Mm. And I'll just never forget, I, I pulled her eyelids back, and her eyes were, like, completely dilated. Mm. And she didn't respond. I go, uh-oh. Right away, Sean, I knew something was really bad going on. I'm not a med- medic or a doctor or anything, but I ran to the phone and called 911 and tried to follow it's really a blur to me even now. I lived right down the street from the fire department. They were there, Sean, within like two minutes. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to um, do CPR, which I didn't really know how to do. But they came in and took over and ended up carting her out of there. And I thought, wow, they're going to get her to the hospital and she's going to be okay. And she wasn't. She, I was sitting out in my front yard and they t- told me that uh, she didn't make it. So mm. I remember... Um, when they went through my place, they found all the drugs and alcohol that was a part of my lifestyle back then. 
they arrested me on drug possession. And I remember sitting in the jail cell that night realizing, wow, um, this is a, a really dark time. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, I, I've shared this a couple of times. I, I thought about, it's the only time in my life I thought about that. Talk about people, what was the low point? Like so I remember thinking about they take your shoelaces, they take everything from you when you get checked in the jail. I was there on drug possession, on, on drugs they found. Mm-hmm. And because there, there was a lot of big quantities, I was the big party house there. And uh, they took me in and I was in the jail cell and they put me by myself because uh, they didn't want to put me in general population because people knew who I was. Yeah. Mates get all stirred up. So I'm in the jail cell. Myself. I actually thought, wow, there's no camera here. Maybe I was trying to think of a way to end it. I thought about climbing up. There's a dividing wall in this little cell I was in by myself that shut the toilet off. I thought about maybe if I could climb up on top of that divider wall, put my hands behind my head and fall head first on the cement to the floor, I can end it all. Jeez. Mm, so that was that night. Yeah. And, um, I didn't do that, but I sure thought about it. Yeah. And that was a really dark time for me for a period of whew, a couple years, Sean. Yeah. Um, I thought my career was over. I thought um, what happened with Liz and um, the tragedy there, the unspeakable tragedy there. Um, people thought, wow, that might be a wake-up call. I went further into it. I'm a, As I speak with you today, I'm a miracle of God to be yeah. here. You were you you, you, numb, you were trying to numb yourself. I went to total self medication mode. Yeah, and I got high every night. I'm, I'm I would pop pills, drink. I mean, I wasn't trying to kill myself. But I sure was on. I, I was on the path of destruction for sure. I, I, it's a miracle I didn't overdose so many of those nights uh-huh. over the next couple of years. I ended up moving into a hotel and just. Uh-huh. Even isolating myself, I wasn't even going out anymore. I was in the total period of isolation at that point. So prior to, that, that, prior to all that and leading up to that, to Liz's death, uh, you, the cost to your your family, too, at that time was tremendous. Yeah. And um, yeah. you said you like Randy yeah, was... Yeah, divorce, of course, uh, you know, and uh, all the things go along with that. So, yeah, my, my, my personal life had become a complete train wreck by my own bad decisions. And Randy was with the company sure. at the time. And, you know, I, I just, like I said, I remember how he was when he, they were married and that would never got weird. You were never had any, uh, confrontations with him or he ever said anything to you or that never happened. You mean after Liz passed? No, even well before, while he knew he must've known it was going on and, Oh, he did. Um, but they, they were divorced for what we're talking about, almost 10 years. Yeah. She'd remarried and they were long, no longer a, a part of each other's lives at all. Yeah. And, really? Um, he was very indifferent. Him in the TV with them for yeah. new valets, so to speak. So, yeah, that wasn't. And Randy and I had traveled together. Some of us were always got along great and trained together. So, um from my end, and I never felt anything off Randy. I, I never felt any issue there whatsoever. Well, what Randy, about after though? Did you have my a respect? Him, never felt that. Never felt an issue with Randy. And what about afterwards? What, though, did you say, Sean? 
What about afterwards? I Did never you... saw Randy. After... I never met Randy afterwards. Really? Never I had never a... was around Randy. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And and things continued. Like you said, you were just uh, out of control. And you know, I mean, thank God you ended up in jail, I guess, is the way we, we could, could say. Yeah, it. I was going to make my big debut. Safety. I tried to clean things up and get back in the gym and and get back in shape and make a get my debut up in Winnipeg, Canada. And sure enough, I didn't have my paperwork and my passport right because at this point I was a convicted felon. You can't mm. just leave the country. I didn't get a, a signature from a judge and they turned me away at the border and sent me back to jail for four more months. Mm. Down and back in the U.S. So much for my big wrestling debut I thought would fix everything again. Yeah. Well, you were a mess, I think, is basically what it came down to. Um, uh, like you said, living in a hotel. Had... Yeah, it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me at that point, yeah. looking back on it now. Yeah. Well, you found Christ through help. It took well, a while. I met a jail chaplain, and he, yeah. he walked me to the foot of the cross a few months later, and my life has been completely transformed. I was forgiven and redeemed and end up being able over time to forgive myself and move forward with my life with direction and purpose that only God can give us. Yeah. And um, God, I'm very thankful for that, Sean. God's got me in an uh, incredible place that only only he can do. So there's hope for any of us. If there's hope for me, there's hope for anybody. Yeah. But it wasn't over. But, out there or, yeah. but your trials weren't over. Sorry, it says your trials weren't over. It, it seemed that he wanted to test you again uh, with what happened on that airplane. And a lot of folks uh, who have seen you since uh, are, you know, you're not the Lex that they they saw on the ring. And you're lucky. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, no, but I'm saying you're lucky you're moving. Uh, uh, you're lucky you're moving today. And I know you see that as, as kind of a miracle. And, and to sum it up quickly, that uh, through what you had done to your body over the years and and uh, a few freak things that happened uh uh, you know, with what with your body and and you're on an airplane and there's a blockage and uh, there's the no blood flow. Yeah, spinal cord injury. Yeah, yeah. you end up. Uh, yeah, you want me to talk about that briefly? Or yeah, yeah, because that was another test, <laughs> a major, a big one. Well, I don't know if it was a test, but it happened. I mean, um, I don't know if that was God testing me. God brought me through it, but I don't necessarily believe that was God testing me. Huh. Uh, that I. People ask me about it. I go, wow, I got almost 15 years of football and 15 yeah. years of wrestling, almost 5,000 matches. I go, I got a dozen lifetime warranties out of this body before it started breaking down. Even the top neurologists on the planet, when my spinal cord injury happened, aren't sure if wrestling or football had a direct impact on that. In other words, yeah, your type of injury, just spinal cord injury, could have happened to and does happen to people who never did sports in their life. Yeah. So we can't say it had any factor at all, or maybe it did. So I I think it may have, but the top neurologist and and I can't say for sure, but it happened. And, and, um, I was, my initial prognosis and diagnosis from getting back to your original, um, statement you made, how thankful I am. I lost all my muscle and the old Lex is now a new Lex. I've been streamlined and redefined, so to speak. I'm 280, I'm 180. All my muscle mass was gone. In a matter of a few months from a spinal cord injury, I was paralyzed wow. from neck down. But my yeah. initial prognosis, Sean, was no movement or real function to speak up from the neck down. I was going to need to be bathed, fed, 
driven around in a van, a motorized wheelchair. So to be able to walk some and stand some and live on my own and drive my own car and, and be independent and, and do what I can do today is another miracle of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful for that. So um, not complaining. Uh, Lex Luger may uh, no longer have the physical strength that he once had, but uh, no one's uh, faith is stronger than his. And um, if you, uh, I mentioned before, if you have had the chance to be around him at one of the shows, I think you realize there is a light in him now. And he seems to be really very happy in his life. And uh, I I just think he's just just an incredible person. And I know that he has helped a lot of people um, in his life now and, uh, and is, you know, used his faith to do that. And I, uh, I just wish him great health and, uh, great happiness because, uh, really just a truly great guy. Uh, now onto, uh, one of the most intense guys, um, I've ever encountered. <laughs> I, I remember it well, uh, back when I was with the WWF, um, and, and, you know, I've had a lot of conversations, but, uh, I don't know if uh, I've ever had, ever had the most, more intense one than I did with, uh, Sid Udy, uh, Sid Justice, uh, you know, Psycho Sid, whatever, uh, I'm going to stick with Sid Justice cause I don't want to piss him off because, you know, it, it, it uh, I, I kind of walked the edge on that. And, uh, clearly that was a podcast I will never forget. All I can say is, uh, never let Sid Justice think you're laughing at him. You know, Sean, this is a deal, and I'm not exaggerating. I don't even remember my first WrestleMania. I didn't realize it was WrestleMania, and I'm not kidding you. I never looked at a booking sheet. I didn't care who I was working with. I didn't care. It was a business to me. I didn't care if I won or lost. I just wanted to get paid. So it was a house show, basically? (laughs) Like, I'm I'm just showing up, doing my... Yes, honestly. You know, I got, you know, after my first WrestleMania, someone said, you know, you were at main event in WrestleMania. I said, no, was I? And they said, yeah. And I remembered the, uh, the Hoosier Dome, but I didn't really realize that was WrestleMania. I do remember doing the interviews for it. And because I had that Southern accent, I guess I was saying wrestling mania or saying it the wrong way. And there was a big sign there that said, tell Sid, just say mania. Um, and, and what it was at that point, you know, Sean, Vince was really upset with me because I had already given my notice. To quit. Yeah. And the reason was is because on that situation it was in that company I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um uh, you know, I left a, a big guaranteed contract to come into this place and the, what the deal was I was gonna do TVs and pay per views for one year and after WrestleMania I was gonna be the world champ and I was gonna f- start my first house show. Yeah. Well, he had the fire of the warrior at SummerSlam and all that shit changed. Yeah. You know, so from the very beginning things just didn't go right. So we were in Albany, New York at Royal Rumble where um, uh, I think Hogan pulled me out from the outside or something, and they started booing him. All right, when we get back to the dressing room, you know, Hogan is screaming and acting like a woman. And I go, hold on a minute. And he's screaming at Vince, you set this up. You made this happen. I, I, I didn't know Vince was that bad of a person at the time you know, that did things like that. I thought that was just all hearsay because um, I didn't care. You know, I really didn't care what they did. So I went to Vince's office. And I said, Vince, listen, man, uh, I stuck my hand out. I said, I'm going to 
I'm going to thank you for the opportunity, but I'm gone. Uh, I cannot work in a place that grown men act like women. And uh, he said, no, 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 I'm not shaking your hand. I said, well, it's not going to do you any good. I'm leaving. He mm-hmm. said, well, will you just stay till WrestleMania? And I said, okay, I'll stay till WrestleMania. And um, that's what I did. And I think I finished up a couple days after WrestleMania. Yeah, and I, and I want to get into that uh, that whole uh, period with, with the WWF and and. But you mentioned how it was pretty much always a, a business to you. It was you were uh, certainly everybody's in it to make money, but you understand that there are people that uh, generations that you know come through the business. It's their it's every every part of their life. And do you understand that you know that that was probably why you had a lot of heat along the way? Because well, you know what, I don't think we never really discussed that. No, um, no one asked me if I had a love for the business, we didn't, we never, that never was discussed. You know, um, I never said, no, I didn't sit there and go, Hey, I was a big wrestling fan or this or that. No, those conversations never happened my whole life. No. Um, now everybody, once I got to WCW and, and I got to WWS at that first run, everybody realized that this guy really doesn't care. You know, he doesn't care who he works with or, or, you know, he's just there to make money. We know the reason they called me Psycho Sid, right? <laughs> Are you laughing, Sean? Huh? Did you just laugh, Sean? I, no, I said I love this story. All right. The story is I didn't even know what Psycho Sid was about. And even the music, because again, Sean, I don't fucking care. So when I come back, it's making Georgia, and no shit, they didn't have maybe 100 people in the audience that night, WWF. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, what the fuck is going on here? You know, now I realize why they were willing to bring me back. They were on their fucking ass, uh, big time. And then mm-hmm. again, people didn't get paid for a month at a time. And that's where I said, okay, I got this job. I'll make the best of it. I think I made about a little over 300 grand that year. Not great, but enough to, you know, pay the bills. Yeah. So, um, and then after uh, I hurt my neck, I was having some serious paralysis on the left side. And that's when I took the year off and took the ag job. But this is what happens. All right. So I quit, you know, after, um, I have a car wreck in, in Ottawa and I'm, I'm paralyzed on the left side of my body. So now I'm on guaranteed money, but Vince lets me go because I can't, you know, I can't make the shows. So I broke my neck. Right. Well, all right. So now I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm out of a job again. So I just start doing independence, and then Paul Lee calls me, coming to ECW. Now, I don't have to say this because it's, it's true, and I don't have a reason to lie. Now, they're selling out for the first time, okay? They're doing big business. Well, WCW catches the wind of this. They're, sl- they're, they're dropping down, right? Yeah. So Eric Bischoff flies a private plane. I pick him up at the West Memphis Airport. We go to Cracker Barrel, and we sit there and make the deal at Cracker Barrel. All right. Yeah. So he says, well, Sid, he goes, we're going to start you out at 1.6. Right, that's exactly what I was making for Vince for four years, right? Okay. So I'm figuring he already knew that. So I'm sitting there, I'm looking at him. Okay, you know this evidently, right? But I didn't say anything. And then he goes, but he said, I mean, 1.6 your first year, Sid. I went, oh, my fucking God, you know. Because I'm trying not to uh, show that how happy I am. So I said, well, let me think about it. You know, so I take him back to the airport, drop him off. 
he actually flew himself in. He's a pilot as well. So um, then they called me the next day. We talked about it on the phone. I said, yeah. So what they did, they brought me into Baltimore. Seems like Baltimore is like the life of my story, story of my life. So I come in in total black, black pants, black shirt, black hood and everything. They bring me to a dressing room. They bring Arnie in. <clears throat> they say, Arnie's back. Okay, if y'all need to work out any problems, work them out right now. And um, Arnie took his hand out said, hey, no problem. I took my hand out said, no problem. And we were back to work. Mm. And that's exactly how that happened. So do you think when it all comes down to it, the fact that you were always willing to just get up and walk away was pretty much uh, the key to it. And the, I mean, there's certainly much more to it because of the way you think, but really that you were always willing to go, you know what, I- I'm out of here. I, I think that has a lot to do with it, Sean, because I didn't need, you know, and I, I don't need anybody today. You know, I'm, I'm very uh, self-efficient, but yeah. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, they knew that I'm not the type of person that's going to be lied to or bullshitted, uh-huh. you know, and um, now WCW, you don't have to worry about that there. You just show up and do your job, mm-hmm. you know, and because um, uh, I told, I saw Eric at um, an autograph signing back in April, and I had to thank him so much. Every time I ever see him, I thank him because he, he made my life what it is today. Huh. I'm very, very well off, and I'm very, very happy, and uh, I, I, I couldn't be where I'm at without, uh, without him. Yeah, that is a T-shirt. Uh, you laughing, Sean? Um, and I still, I still get, uh, you know, little uh, chills run through my body when I when I hear that. Uh, <laughs> I was like, you know, two thousand miles away from him. Uh, but uh, what I love so much, though, about Sid, if you've listened to the podcast, is that that guy really. There's no question he was. And always will be his own man, if you ever heard that term before. But he is. And maybe that's why he was so successful with the WWF, uh, if you look at it in terms of, uh, you know, he walked away with uh, buckets of money from them because they were willing to pay it because they wanted to put him in the ring. And I don't know, maybe it's up to the fact that Vince, it drove Vince crazy, that really he just, when it came down to it, he didn't give a damn. And he honestly was uh, willing to go home, you know, pick up his ball, literally go home and play softball. Uh, he he was like that. And, and you know, uh, people find it hard to believe in the way he talks in that podcast. If you know, Like I said, if you listen to it, if you haven't, please, you, you should go back and listen to it. But that, you know, he didn't even realize that, like, WrestleMania was really anything more than another house show. I mean, but that's I think that's the way he looked at it. I can't believe that he didn't realize, you know, it was WrestleMania. But at the same time, I think in many ways, it's kind of the way he looked at it, that it was another payday. He never was and is and admitted that, you know, he was never a huge wrestling fan. It was a way to make a living and a good one so that he could go home and play softball whenever he wanted to. So, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that was said. Um, but you couldn't describe Brett the Hitman Hart that way, right? I mean... <laughs> I mean, you talk about somebody who lived the business, breathed the business, loved the business. Um, coming up here, we're going to have some uh, clips of uh, one of the most favorite events that I ever had a chance to be a part of. And, you know, I have had an opportunity to be a part of a lot of great events. Um, this time, though, I was given the chance to do a one-on-one interview in front of a live audience with one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Brett the Hitman Hart. 
and this was at uh, at Starcast Two, and um, it was everything I hoped it would be, and so much more. Uh, it was just a dream come true. I had not seen Brett for many decades, and uh, it was just a really fun conversation. And uh, you know, and as I said, it was uh, everything I hoped for and more. Well, that more happened to be the addition of Tom McGee, the wrestler that the you know the Hitman launched into stardom, if you recall, with the WWF after one of the greatest audition matches ever. And uh, Conrad Thompson found him and got him to come down uh, for this show, and uh, it was uh, fantastic. Unfortunately uh, for uh, Tom McGee. Because they played the match and everything. Unfortunately for Tom McGee, and you watch this, you're like, this is just incredible. Unfortunately for Tom, that he couldn't have Bret Hart with him in the ring for every match after that because he probably would have been very successful. <laughs> but uh, anyway, getting back to this, it was a two-hour show, and I loved every uh, absolute minute of it. And here's part of that incredible day. And a lot had to happen uh, along the way there, but uh, what did it mean to be inducted the first time? To the WWE because a lot of people didn't think that that might ever happen. Oh, it was um, very important to me, as was my career. You know, I, I, um, I had a when I had my stroke in 2002 and I was in the hospital, which was bad enough as it was. Like I was like totally um, confused and uh, just totally bummed out about what having a stroke and not understanding even what the long-term consequences of a stroke were. But um, I remember they had just brought a phone to my room so I could make local calls. And I plugged the phone in, and my phone rang, and it was Vince McMahon on the phone. And I was I hadn't talked to Vince McMahon since I sat on a park bench with him when Owen died. I hadn't seen or talked to him in, in quite a long time. And I had a lot of bad, bad blood still towards Vince and the company. But it was out of nowhere, and I answered the phone. I remember there was this hesitation about, like, slamming the phone down. Like, I wanted to slam it down. But at the same time, uh, the, the other side of me, the, Vince was like a very much like a father figure to me and somebody I had a lot of respect for once upon a time. And I, 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 I restrained myself from hanging up on him and talking to him. And I was, like I say, I was kind of a shattered mess anyway. It was from... I could barely hold the phone and stuff like that. And uh, But he talked to me about... Um, I had always talked to Vince about releasing a Best of Bret Hart. Like, um, we always talked about, like, whenever I had a really good match, he would always go, that's one's going to go on the the um, anthology we're going to put out of you, like, when you're when when we're done with your career. It's like you're going to have this DVD set or whatever. We, we we just talked about it. And I remember he we talked about it that day on the phone... And he said, we'd like, still like to do that with you. And I said, I'd, I'd like to do that. That would mean a lot to, to me to have my career. I didn't want my career and everything I did just to kind of get erased and um, minimized. And uh, so we had a nice talk. And the more he, ta- he talked to me then about being in the Hall of Fame. And I said, well, if you inducted, if you ever offered the Hall of Fame for me, I, I said, I would most definitely come. I feel I have a right to be there. And I earned it. And... Uh, <clears throat> So he, he promised me that it would happen, 
and I was grateful for that. And I remember I kind of hung up the phone, and after we talked, and he gave me a big pep talk about I was a fighter, and uh, I, you know, I was going to beat this thing, and you know, I, I just found his words really helped at, at, at that critical moment when I kind of <clears throat> maybe needed a pat on the back or some support. And um, so I was always grateful for. It. I remember I hung up the phone, and that was the first step towards thawing out our our bitter, pro- you know, the problems that happened between us. In this past year's class, and uh, long-awaited, a lot of uh, people wanted to see this happen. That uh, you were inducted again with the Hart Foundation, and a great tribute to Jim the Anvil Nightheart. And I really, Brett, I thought it was awesome. Not only did you pay tribute to Jim, but also all of these other great tag teams that we had a chance to see back then. And there were so many. I, my, my speech, in case you didn't notice, was really important to me this year. And uh, I wanted very much to speak on Jim's behalf and, uh, you, know, you know, just say some nice things about like I watched um, some of these Hall of Fame speeches. I won't name names, but <laughs> so many wrestlers oh, okay, no. that were up there never thanked anybody. They thanked Stephanie and they thanked Vince and they thanked Triple H. And I thought it was such bullshit. You know, they should thank they should thank the wrestlers that made them and the wrestlers that worked with them. And I was. Really disappointed how so many of them never thanked any of the wrestlers that 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 um, went to all the trouble to help them in their careers. They, most of them never had any recollection of anybody helping them. And uh, I was disappointed with a lot of the speeches. I remember going, "These guys are the shits." You know, <laughs> if they ever get me to go up there, I'd, I got I got things I'd like to say about the wrestlers that worked with us and helped us. And uh, you know, I was glad that um, I was able to. You know, even in a small way, to thank some of the teams like the Bees and the Rujo Brothers and the Haku and uh, and uh, Tonga Kid and you know there were so many teams we worked with, but they were they were so good and the Bulldogs too. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it just insane that the Freebirds and some of these other teams, the Rock and Roll Express, are in the Hall of Fame when they never even wrestled in WWE? I was there. I was there in the dressing room when Andre the Giant fired Michael Hayes because he was drunk. And he was fired, and they were done. And I know Terry Gordy came around later, but he, his brain had been removed by then. And, um, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, and Terry Gordy was a great wrestler, but um, he did way too many drugs, man. There was nothing. The lights were on, and nobody was home anymore. And uh, that's just the sad truth at the time. But I, I felt, I felt um, you know, that the Hart Foundation, not just the Hart Foundation, but the, the Bulldogs, the Demolition, uh, even the Killer Bees and the Rougeau Brothers, you know, as far as teamwork and, uh, and moves and things like that, they were, they were all established, great working teams from whatever territories they came from. But we were all really good wrestlers and uh, to, to, to have that opportunity to, to thank them for, for all the matches where they made me and all the matches that we had such safe wrestlers like Jim Brunzel could throw the greatest drop kick in wrestling and never hurt you he was such a pro um, Brian Blair was a great wrestler uh, both the Rougeau brothers were, were, were solid wrestlers 
you know, and I think of uh, Tito and Rick Martel, and you can just go on and on. Even the Rockers. How is it that the Rockers are not in the Hall of Fame? And how is it that um, the Midnight Express are, or not the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express are? I was there in the dressing room when they told the Rock and Roll Express that they were too small and they weren't good enough to be on WWE TV. And uh, I go, there's something wrong with the Hall of Fame when they don't pay homage to the guys that really did the work. You know, even demolition, I don't know, I think there's a concussion lawsuit going on where so they've been kind of blackballed. They're not allowed then they can't celebrate them or give them any credit for what they did. They were they were the tag team through the nineties uh, or eighties and uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna give uh, the Freebirds a free pass into the Hall of Fame for nothing for being drunk all the time then I, all right. think, I think you could give Demolition or the Killer Bees or, shit, even the, the Hillbillies, Elmer and uh, Hillbilly Jim. I mean, at least they did the work. You know, they were there. They actually in the dressing room putting their boots on. They did the time. And I think that's what I find sort of troubling about the Hall of Fame sometimes. Yeah, there, there's some politics involved. Uh, but I have to also give you credit. There was a little interruption during that speech. And uh, you were like, what the hell was going on? I'm waiting for it to happen again. <laughs> He's going to be ready this time. Well, I, I, um, I felt bad that happened. And I was, I, when I think about it now, it's like you got that, that stubborn heart, stu- you know, stubbornness. Now. It's like I was determined to finish my speech, yeah. damn it. And yeah. I wasn't. You did a great I ca- job. I came here for a reason. I wanted to speak about Jim the Anvil. And I had a good, I worked hard on my speech. I worked for about two weeks on it, sort of tweaking it and. I thought I had had it down right, and when that guy interrupted it and tried to ruin it, I was like, I think they were actually trying to clear everybody out of the ring like we were done, like next. And I was like, no, I'm not done no. yet. I gotta, I'm not even getting warmed up yet. And so I, I feel bad at what happened to him, but... Um, really? It wasn't such a bad day for me. It was more of a bad day for him. Exactly. All right, we're going to open it up to uh, questions here in a sec. I just wanted to mention one thing that really stood out to me as you wrap that up, Brett, is you said, uh, don't live the second half of your life regretting the first. And I just thought that that, that just really touched me. And I, and it, I, I know coming from you, uh, it, that means a lot. Well, I, I think um, that often, you know, I'm sort of, um, people get this impression that I'm, you know, angry, bitter guy that never got over what happened, which I never really got over what happened. But, <laughs> um, but I, I, at the same time, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change anything. I loved my career. I loved, I loved the work I had. I, lo- I loved working with Jim the Anvil Nightheart. It was so much fun every day. I laughed. I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and had so many great memories with Jim. And and I just you know going back to all the years that I worked for WWF uh, and WWE, or I, I just had so many good memories of, and I've had that opportunity to work with all the great wrestlers that I worked with, from Andre to you know the other guys I've named, but the Bulldogs and I, I you know I just loved so much of what I did, and I worked so hard, and I still stand by my work today. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't have a lot of bad feelings about my career. 
Um, but I, I do um, have regrets about some, some of the stuff that happened, like my injury. I wish, you know, I wish that, that um, Bill Goldberg had never kicked me in the head as hard as he could. Um, I don't know how you give a guy a Hall of Fame thing for, for hurting as many wrestlers that Bill Goldberg hurt, but, and without consequence. I mean, he usually got a pat on the back and told how good a job he did out there when you were scraping the wrestler that worked with him off the mat. And um, so I feel bad sometimes that, um, you know, the, when Bill Goldberg kicked me in the head, I, honest to God, I lost um, about $16 million in like one second. Um, it's like all the money, all the contract money that I had. I just signed with WCW for $3 million a year for another three years on top of the two years that I had left on my original contract. So it was... It was bad timing, and it was unfortunate. And I know Bill never did it on purpose, but um, I think that's why a few months ago I was as stiff as I was about um, Seth Rollins hurting guys in the ring. Is it a, to be honest, if, in pro wrestling, injuries do happen. And there, there's always going to be uh, uh, injuries and things that happen from unexpected things. But it's not about hurting each other. You know, it's about, like I said, it's more like figure skating. And if you can't go out there and figure skate with me, don't work with me. You yeah, know, that, I'm not know about you're, chopping you're me. I remember Ric Flair used to like chopping me all the time. And they hurt. You get these blisters on your chest and you handprint on your chest for like three days. And it's like, it's funny. I always remember going, that's what they do to the rookies. You know, they give them, they chop you and keep chopping you. And it's like, they, they think it's a badge of honor or something. Which is probably why everyone in the building goes, woo, you know. But uh, it hurts. And I remember Rick telling me, I said, Rick, no more chops. No more chops. He goes, but it's part of my thing. I I do, I've always do a chop. It's like people expect it. And I said, if you do a chop, I said, I got a move I do. I said, you go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell, I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this. And uh, then I'll punch you right in the mouth, as hard as I can. <laughs> and I remember Rick, Rick looked at me, and, and he said, Are you kidding? I said, No, I'm not. I said, I'll punch you right in the nose, as hard as I can. And we never did chops after that. When I talked to Vince, he said, I really want this guy, I want to see what this guy can do. And you're the only one that can bring out that kind of reaction from the crowd. And if he... If he wins, he's not going to get the right reaction if he loses. And then Vince promised me the match would never, ever be seen, ever. And ever. Another lie, but... Uh, Before um, we talk about what you, the conversation you two had, uh, you've been to Japan, had some experience, not much. Did you feel you were ready for this? Well, I mean, from the, from the get-go when I started wrestling, I was looking to get into the WWE. That was my target. And um, so I think actually I had been in Stampede, I might be wrong, but I think I had been up there training under your dad's, you know, watchful eye, but also um, with Bruce, and of course Owen was usually there as well, Um, maybe even for, it might have been a year. And I'm not sure if I'd been to Japan yet at that point, but... um, what was the question again? Were you ready? I mean, oh, did you was think I ready? You were ready for this? this oh, was so, so then I got the opportunity to go in, 
And so you've been already a professional athlete for a long time where you're, you're, you know, out there to do whatever the sport is and to accomplish it. And so you're very focused and you, you know, and you're ready, you have a can-do attitude. And I have been trained by, you know, these top um, people in the business. So when I had the opportunity to go in there, first of all, it's very exciting and when you're in stampede wrestling, there's a lot of people who are in there, they want to get up to that level, but their chances of getting there aren't that great. Yeah. But they're really all trying, and you get the feeling of how significant and important it was. Yeah. So I, did, I really um, I took it very seriously, and I was very happy to be there and grateful to be there. But once you get there, nothing can prepare you for it because you show up there, and there's thousands of people, and you've got all these bigger-than-life characters, including Vince McMahon, uh, and it's like in your presence, they be, they're like vignettes. You're walking through and all of a sudden, boom, there's this figure and then there's another one. And then there's the people in authority and you can hear them talking like, let's put him with this person. Let's put him with that one. And then you're shuttled off somewhere else. And it's just like sensory overload. The best there is, the best there was, the best there will ever be. Yes, there may be a lot of debate uh, about that with people, but... That describes to me the man who was uh, one of the greatest to have ever stepped in the ring. No one will ever convince me um, differently. And he definitely tells it like it is. got to respect Brett the Hitman Hart. You may not agree with him, but boy, you got to respect him because he just puts it out there. And uh, I know, folks, I said that we're going to have five uh, different... Uh, <clears throat> favorite podcast, but I could not wrap this all up without including uh, part of the conversation I had with who, to me, was the greatest stick man in the business ever. And you didn't think I was not going to include him, right? Uh, he taught me so much, and I know I would never have lasted in the WWF if it wasn't for him. And you've heard me say it before, and I will never stop saying it uh, when asked about the greatest announcers in professional wrestling. And uh, I'm going to say it again. There was Gene Okerlund, and then there was the rest of us. Did you first meet uh, Terry Belia before, before WWF, right? Did I met go him in AWA. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the first really stand-up interviews that he ever did was done with, uh, with me. Right. And I, 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 we had numerous takes on uh, market-specific interviews. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, it, it 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 all kind of fell in place, and this character developed. And mm -hmm. that's let me tell you something, brother. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's where I all that came Gene. from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but but there were rough beginnings. It's kind of hard for us to to see that. But when uh, the Hulkster, and you see in some of those early matches that uh, you know, as we saw what it rose to, it, it, it's interesting to see the very beginning of that. And you were, you were right there. So it, it, it did take a little smoothing of the edges and uh, you were there to help him out. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, uh, even today, he credits me with uh, uh, helping him out initially. And uh, as a result of that, I got a, uh, a huge payday on teaming up with him in uh, our, our, our home territory there in Minneapolis out at the old Met center and we drew about 16,000 people. Oh. And Hulk Hogan and Mean Gene met the team of George the Animal Steel and the <laughs> nefarious Mr. Fuji. Yes, and who got who the pin? Great, 
Yeah, right. <laughs> and I got the pin. You got the Thanks pin. Thanks to Hogan throwing <laughs> me up in the air. But Fuji, I was uh, kind of uh, leery of him. He had that, that famous finishing hole that took many of opponents yeah. out, and that was the old five-on-two. Yeah, that's funny. Um, did you see, though, at the beginning with that, that there was something about uh, Terry Balea, about who would become Hulk Hogan? Did you? I mean, besides just the yeah. stature and everything, but did you see something in him right away? He came off the movie Rocky Three, where he'd worked with uh, Stallone, yeah. and initially, before he even arrived, he had gone after the movie out uh, on a vacation out in uh, Hawaii to work with uh, Ed Francis and uh, Lord Alfred uh, or Lord James Blairs and mm-hmm. uh, some of the guys out there. I think even Morocco was uh, was out there at that time, but. Uh, uh, he, he, he came in and, uh, actually I had a cutout of him that I would talk about this guy that was going to be coming to the AWA mm-hmm. in the next uh, few weeks. And, uh, we put him over as kind of a, a heel and his manager who was with me was a guy by the name of luscious Johnny Valiant, uh-huh. who I'm sure you remember yeah. very well. Nobody could figure out what the hell he was saying, but. <laughs> that was neither here nor there. <laughs> didn't but, matter. But, but all of a sudden, they'd take a look at Hogan, and they didn't want to buy him as a bad guy. Vern right. Gagne, being a pretty good judge of character, said this guy needs to be a baby face. Uh-huh. And uh, hence uh, uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, incredible Hulk Hogan, uh, Eye of the Tiger, all of those things that kind of disappeared on that character as it emerged to what it uh, ended up being at, say, like a WrestleMania one. Now, Gene, do you, and maybe you know the story on this and how it happened, that uh, before he came to the AWA, he was really, he was still the property of uh, WWF with Vince Sr. And uh, legend has it, and that which means it could be absolutely untrue, that he was not pleased that, that uh, Terry had done this Thunderlips thing with, with the Rocky movie. And, is that how he ended up leaving and ending up in the AWA? How did you, how, do you know how well, that well, went? Yeah. Vince senior gave him the, uh, the name Hulk, right. uh, or, or, or Hulk Hogan. Right. Uh, so there was no confusion as to Lou Ferrigno and the incredible Hulk, the big right. green monster. Uh, this was the blonde bomber and, yeah. uh, and Hulk, Hulk actually did have a contract with, uh, with Vince senior but uh, Vince Sr. was a, a very understanding guy, and the business wasn't as rough or mechanical as it is today. Uh-huh. Everything, everybody is, has signed a, a contract for uh, services rendered, and uh, most of them are on, even, even a John Cena today, who's a, a very big name in the business, along with many, many others. But uh, they work as independent contractors. They are not employees of the company. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I today work for WWE as an independent contractor, which yeah. is uh, good for both of us because it gives me a little flexibility to do some things outside of the of the circle, the territory of the WWE. Which and I make various appearances, yeah, right, <laughs> all over the country yeah. and, uh, and the world, too. Yeah. Uh, do you remember, and taking you back then, uh, you would end up going to the, the WWF in 84. 
But prior to that, and all this was starting to crust, it was, you know, the rumblings of the WWF and Vince uh, basically mortgaging the house and everything else to do what he wanted to do. But what were you hearing about what was happening over there in New York with the WWF? You know, I was thinking a lot of different things, but I know when you get guys like like Hogan behind the scenes, you've got a, a Pat Patterson. And then you've got Vince, who is an absolute genius, as as we all know. Uh, He's not a softy, but uh, (laughs) I don't think you could be and and make it in this in this game today, or or even back then. Yeah, well, you can imagine. Yeah, you can imagine what he was doing. Remember when he was taking over these territories? That that was uh, not going over. Didn't go. I was right right there in the in the front row, my office in. and the Minneapolis is where the call emanated to Vern Gagne with an offer and a generous one because I overheard the whole thing <laughs> that he was going to pay for that territory. Plus, he was going to give Vern and his son Greg a job and use as much talent as he possibly could out of that AWA stable. Gagne yeah. said uh, in two short words, uh, not interested. Uh, <laughs> Were those the words and, uh, or a couple of others? Right. Well, no, they they weren't. <laughs> they weren't the words. But uh, yeah. it, it the, obviously that deal uh, never took place. And to tell you the truth, Vern Gagne should have taken it, as mm-hmm. I look at it we'll in retrospect, back. because uh, he ended up uh, losing most of, uh, God, it was a fortune back then, yeah. you know, $40, 50000000 million down to nothing. Wow. So how did the connection start with you, with the, with the WWF? Was it a phone call? Well, was I, it, I, uh, I think it was Hulk and the fact that Pat Patterson was so close with uh, Vince. They threw in a few good words. And actually, Vince is a guy that called me first. And, uh, of course, he, he was going for broke. And yeah. uh, he put it all on the line that led up to, I think, WrestleMania 1, which uh, would have been the... I guess the the point of either yay or nay, and it was a, a big yay. But back then we didn't even have pay per view cable. Everything right. was on closed circuit. circuit. Yeah, yeah, and it was very archaic, uh, very tough. You had to rent out uh, any kind of a, a venue that would be, I guess, some of them like uh, you know orchestra halls and and things of that uh, ilk. Uh, uh, but today, you know. Uh, WrestleMania going into uh, New Orleans in the Superdome and uh, 104,000 in Dallas a couple of years back. Uh, big deal. Big deal. Oh, yeah. And when you get to 18 and $20 million gates, that rivals uh, top sports right now in the, in the world. Yeah. And, and when you came in, Gene, did you – uh, expect to be such a big part of how that, you know, in front of the cameras and, and part of the, basically part of how the storylines went and then your connection to Hulk. Uh, did you expect to be that big a part of it? Well, not, not really. Uh, uh-huh. I, I, I did play a, a, a rather big part in the AWA because the interviews yeah. were, were the, the entertainment. You didn't yeah. have uh, a Cena going against uh, AJ Styles or a Jericho or some other heel. Uh, you didn't have Hulk Hogan uh, going against another main eventer. What what we had in the AWA 
is what they would call enhancement matches. Right. And those enhancement matches would build up to the next live card in either Chicago, Milwaukee, Denver, Omaha, Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, in San Francisco, Salt Lake, wherever. Mm-hmm. And that uh, was all done with interviews. It wow. wasn't done with somebody uh, nailing somebody with a guitar like the Honky Tonk Man uh, or others. And uh, it worked. They yeah. drew huge houses. And when I, when I saw all of a sudden that they were taking kind of the entertainment out of, uh, of our television by putting on these huge main event matches on TV that normally you'd pay to see in a venue in your town. Yeah. So it, uh, it was a lot different than uh, initially yeah. when I was working with the old AWA. Yeah. And at what point, when you, once you had arrived with the WWF, did you realize that you know this is this is blowing up. This is becoming uh, beyond just uh, wrestling territories, wrestling fans. That uh, it was becoming mainstream. People were starting to take notice as they built up to that WrestleMania one in, in '85. Was there a point when you said, "Wow, this this is this is getting big"? Well, I, I, I'd say I came. I, the first event that I covered was back at the old Chase or Kiel Auditorium in St. Louis in December of 1983. And actually, that was the very first time that I had met Vince McMahon in person. But I liked the way the guy operated. And he and I would do, he did the play-by-play, call of the action, and I would do the color, believe it or not. (laughs) And it was kind of a, a, a very straight Vince McMahon, along with maybe kind of a colorful Gene Okerlund. Not mm-hmm. that uh, the other color guys had not been uh, of that of that persuasion. I know Pat Patterson was, yeah. uh, you know, a good technical guy. Uh, they even had Bruno San Martino at one time uh, <laughs> doing color, which <laughs> which a guy that uh, didn't really have command of the English language <laughs> was still very effective. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, very they used to, did they used to you used to make Pat say Rio de Janeiro just to just for, just for grins? But yeah, that, it's yeah. fun to listen to some of that entertain that commentary. That <laughs> well, that, that, that's a that's a great story on of Pat Patterson. You know that uh, he became the first intercontinental champion yes. and won the title in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> and uh, I asked Pat one time, "How did you like Rio?" He said, "I've never been there." <laughs> so that was kind of an inside uh, deal where <clears throat> the title was won out of the country and nobody knew about it. Yeah, and I think that is in the record books, actually. <laughs> it, it is, right. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's a good thing and that Pat found his place as, one of, let's say, one of the greatest bookers ever, that uh, he, that he uh, you know, removed himself from the commentary chair. But yeah, was, and, and, uh, and your, your, your initial question... And I was not ducking it. When did I realize that we had something? Yeah. I think, and, and, and I was a part of it, yeah. uh, which was uh, kind of a thrill for me. Uh, but I, I would say it was a year, year and a half in, and all of a sudden uh, we got going with MTV, yeah. which was a hot item uh, at that time, still is today somewhat. I don't know if it has the same then, stature yeah. that then it had it back huge. then. Yeah, it was huge. But that was a rock and wrestling connection, yeah. uh-huh. and that was dynamite. That led to uh, the big event of, uh, of WrestleMania 1 at MSG, but other things like uh, Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling. Yeah. 
and uh, then per- uh, various pay-per-view events. I mean, take a look, Sean, at the Survivor Series, King of the Ring, yeah. uh, Royal Rumble, which Pat Patterson, by the way, uh, originated. It was his brainchild. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the things really just became huge. And then NBC. My God, yeah. I couldn't believe that Saturday night's main event was going to yeah. be on a major network uh, at, at that time was a big deal. Yeah. But that first WrestleMania, did you realize what Vince was risking did, uh, at the time? I mean, he put everything on the table for this. Yeah, he, he did indeed. And uh, he got very little help. I mean, everybody threw in their, their two cents worth on that. Yeah. Uh, nobody knew what they were going to be getting in terms of uh, a payoff. Uh, there were no guarantees. You got a piece of the house and other outside revenue. Uh, Vince did get a little helping hand from uh, Dick Ebersol, who at yeah. the time was an independent producer, had mm-hmm. been involved with Saturday Night Live, with Friday Night Videos and other assorted uh, programs that basically aired on, on NBC. He ultimately became the uh, president, or should I say chairman of NBC uh, television. Yeah. But uh, uh, he, he and Vince got along very well, and they were kind of on the, on the same mindset. And uh, all of that, uh, I think, was a product of both guys early on. Yeah, and I think but that Vince, also... Vince, Vince did lead the charge. Yeah, and he definitely did. And uh, the thing also with Vince, and, and I was part of this uh, you know, influx of people that he brought in, that uh, he saw that the, the only way he was going to raise the bar, because the production values... To that point, with wrestling, had not you know the, kind of the studio stuff and you know, and he knew that I'm gonna I I'm not gonna find this within the world of wrestling. And he brought started bringing people in from the networks, and that was that was quite a collision, uh, Gene. As I'm sure you remember well, that you brought a lot of these people in who weren't smart to the business, and then you had guys that were old school wrestling, and it was the wild west. Oh, it was definitely, yeah. and uh, yeah, the addition of. Uh... Sean Mooney was a, a big deal. We're bringing in legitimate uh, uh, news guys, you know, entertainment guys, uh, uh, and, and it all worked out beautifully. But I think that formula of people not being real smart to the business, at least on our side, uh, really was a, a, big, a big boon for our television product back then. It is really uh, hard for me to listen to that podcast because I can't really ever explain what Gene Okerlund meant to me. Um, I uh, just admired him so much. I looked at him in awe when I would watch him perform, knowing I would never be that good. And I am so grateful that I had the chance to see Gene a few times over the last three years before he passed. Um, We even got to do some shtick together on an episode of the Edge and Christian show. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, you should check it out. Um, He made me laugh uh, the whole time, just like he did when I was lucky enough to share the WWF microphone with him so many years ago. And uh, he he really was uh, just an incredible person. And my God, what a performer. What a performer. And thank you, Gene Okerlund, for everything. Um, You will never, ever be forgotten. And, uh, folks, neither will any of you. 
Uh, I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast over the last three years. It has been an amazing ride, uh, having done over 200 original episodes, plus all the classic uh, episodes we did with the uh, WWE Network uh, episodes of uh, everything from superstars to prime time to, uh, you, you know, you, you heard them. And, and I hope you'll keep tuning into those. Those are up there as well. Uh, if you haven't had time to listen to them all, no worries. They are going to be available in the same place where you got them before. And we will continue to post Vault episodes, as I said, every Wednesday at the same time, 6 a.m. Eastern, uh, week after week. Um, as I said before, if I have entertained you over the last three years, I, I hope, please, I hope you will join me for my new podcast and YouTube channel, Upside of 40 with Sean Mooney. And uh, we're going to post the links to both uh, the podcast and the YouTube channel uh, with these podcast notes. So please, please, please subscribe to them both when you're done listening to this. It will be greatly appreciated. I told you that I'm starting this thing from the ground up. And I, uh, I really think you're going to like uh, what you're going to hear and see. And I am really excited about launching it. Um, I can't ch- sign off here without uh, a huge thank you to Evan Polisher and Casey Jerome Beck. Uh, folks, trust me on this. Uh, without them, this podcast would never have been delivered week after week. It took quite uh, a commitment by those guys, and they were there every time I needed them. And their contributions were endless, and I can never, ever thank them enough. Uh, Evan and Casey, you guys are absolutely the best. Uh, folks, moving forward, you can contact me through email at upsideof40 at gmail.com. That's upsideof40 at gmail.com. And you can follow the podcast um, on Twitter uh, at upsideof40. We're making it easy, at upsideof40. Oh, and of, of course, go to YouTube and subscribe. Please, please do that. I need you to do that. Uh, go to YouTube and just uh, search Upside of 40 with Sean Mooney. Well, uh, I guess that's it. Uh, It has been awesome, everybody. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out.